Turn with me to John 14, please. do us well to keep that song in mind when we consider that Jesus is our friend even though he speaks words of reproof, words that convict and compel us to consider our relationship to him. This will all be brought out within the sermon, I hope and pray, but we do have a friend in Jesus. John 14, verses 1 through 14. We'll also read verses 22 and 23 as well. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there may you be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, I have, have, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me hath seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I and the Father, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe on the count of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall, be, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do. Now verses 22 and 23. Judas, not Iscariot, said, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. My choice, and it's always a hard thing when I preach so little, it's always difficult to choose what text can I do as a text that can uplift the body, strengthen the body, and also challenge the body. And to do it more from a topical perspective because I preach so little. 
And in this, I'm tying in with what I'm doing in Tuesday night Bible studies. We're studying the Trinity, which is a great challenge to me as a teacher, but as well, it should be a challenge to all of us, not only to learn of the relationship of God the Son and God the Father, but also to personally know Him in that relationship. And that our relationship would be between one another, even influenced by my intimate knowledge of the Father and of the Son, so that we would all be one in Him. If we were to calculate at this period of time within the context of the history when John 14 is written, and the soon-to-be Garden of Gethsemane account, we would all agree that probably 100% of unfaithfulness is resident within every single disciple. Even to the degree we could call it, I think, ignorant unbelief. We see that brought out even here, and I'll bring that to focus a little bit. What we have in this text are three of those twelve disciples. One a traitor, Judas, but not Iscariot. And the other two, Thomas and Philip himself. And what we have here are three men, and we're given this little snapshot, you could say, of three men's unbelief. But not just unbelief. Unbelief in the personhood of God. Unbelief in the claims of Christ of who he is. To believe that Jesus is God is to believe unto eternal life. To believe that he is not God is to believe not in life. Jesus even said to some of the Pharisees, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. You will just simply die in your sins because you don't believe I am in the Father and the Father in me. How can you say, Philip, Show me the Father. How can you say this? What a conversation we're given, you could say, made privy to here between Philip and Jesus and the other two disciples. Well, basically in this chapter we see in verse 5, Thomas didn't know where Jesus was going. In verses 8 and 9, Philip didn't know where Jesus was from. In verses 22 and 23, Judas didn't know how Jesus was going to reveal himself. Unbelief. Ignorance. There are an awful lot of questions about the disciples, and sometimes Peter gets picked on too much, so I'm going to pick on the three other disciples today. By the way, by doing that, I pick on my own self and everyone here. We all, and Gary actually at the elders' meeting yesterday, made a passing comment, and, and I think he was, you may have quoted Calvin But there is always a certain measure of unbelief in every one of us as believers, isn't there? And moments of time and trial and tribulation many times brings that out. And we have to guard ourselves against it. And by the way, this is one of the ways that we will do it. As you see with the title of the sermon, Hanging Around Jesus. I use the vernacular of our day because hanging around Jesus is a lot more Better, you could say, I'm a lot more colloquial phrased than, say, the Elizabethan language of, have I not been with you so long, Philip, that you don't know me? We somewhat have a slander or slang the language today, do we not? So hanging around Jesus is the title of the sermon today. 
but an awful lot of questions about these disciples. In fact, all the disciples are in the same place of unbelief. Can't just say this of these three men. In John 16, the disciples as a whole were confused about when Jesus spoke about, in a little while I am going to leave you, and in a little while I am going to return. I go to the Father, he says. Or I should say, in a little while I'm going to the... In a little while I'm going away, but in a little while I shall return. The disciples' response to that was, we don't know what you're talking about. We just don't know. Where are you going? The crucifixion had not happened yet, but we are in the last week of that crucifixion. Jesus alludes to what's going on in the heart's disciples when he says in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. There's great things, perplexing things going on in the hearts of the disciples at this time. Jesus even says, sorrow has filled your heart. I'm telling you, I'm giving you so much information that sorrow has just filled your heart. Your hearts are even agitated like roiled water. Ever boil eggs? Boil water for a tea? Joyce and I don't have a microwave, so I can use that illustration. We don't do that too much anymore, do we? But watch it boil. It's this slow, progressive roll that gets up to a hot boil. They were agitated. And they had actual, actual real reasons for being agitated with Jesus even at this period of time. They were even questioning him. He says, Lord, why do you speak to us in figurative language, they said, or asked Why don't you just speak to us plainly? We know that the Lord regularly used parables to communicate truth. He says, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And those who have, even more shall be given to them. But to those who do not have, even what they have shall be taken away from them. By the way, that latter reference is referring to the lost. Even what little light they may have, I'm going to take it away from you because you don't believe. But he spoke in parables. And many times, we know, his, par- his, his disciples were... They just didn't understand what the parables meant. Sometimes they even asked, what does this parable mean? And to a certain point, certain point we... <laughs> you know, our flesh gets the best of us and we just start getting a little aggravated with the teacher and the rabbi of our souls, Right? Since the overall context of the Gospel of John is the revelation of Christ's deity, we see that in John twenty thirty one. These things have, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might have life in his name. Therefore, the overall context is Christ revealing himself as God. In our study, we've learned on Tuesday nights that if you want to know anything about the Trinity... God reveals himself progressively, revelatory-wise, from Old Testament to New, and the crescendo of books is the Gospel of John. Colossians, though, reveals much, and other books of the New Testament. Colossians, uh, I mean, uh, John, the Gospel of John, is the place to go. That's God's intention. You ask who I am, I'm going to tell you. With all of this information that Jesus gives, he gives preference to his disciples. He even explains his parables. 
And yet we're going to learn really quickly that God withholds information because of that progressive revelation of Himself. He is going to fully reveal His Son on Calvary. He's going to fully reveal His Son at the resurrection. And therefore, there's a certain measure of mystery still left with His disciples. But He does not hold Him, hold them, unaccountable, you could say, to the information and the works that they've already seen in Him. He does not excuse away their ignorance. I love Luke 19 that talks about the slave that thought that the master was austere. And many times God seems that way to us. He requires a lot of us. But when we consider that the Holy Spirit indwells us, as the third person of the Trinity, God Himself, Christ, the glory of God, filling us. We have no excuse. John fourteen, ten and eleven says, Do not believe I am in do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Otherwise believe on the account of the works themselves. If you have this little faith, he's saying to his disciples. At least believe the works, right? We, are say, we ourselves may say with the disciples, if you would only speak just a little more clearly. You know, you've been using figurative language, Lord. You use parables. Could you just tell us plainly? By the way, the lost, the leaders of Israel, they're the ones who demanded that Jesus declare who he is. Are you the Messiah? Say it plainly. Are you saying you're God? We're going to stone you. Right? We don't want to be found in that category of demanding anything of God, do we? So therefore, God speaks in the manner which He ordained to speak, and we are happy in it, are we not? We may say with the disciples, if you revealed your glory, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, could you just do it again one more time? Then I'll believe that you are equal with the Father in heaven. Now I'll understand this relationship between the Trinitarian persons. Lord, just show yourself one more time. The Father said in the Old Testament, I will not share my glory with another. You're telling us about your glory that's equal with the Father. Show yourself one more time. But many times He chooses not. Maybe we say with the disciples, if the Father from heaven would just simply give me a revelation, a voice, an inclination... All you have to do is watch TBN. Boy, they're talking with God all the time. All those preachers. I've seen preachers literally say, you know, be like me coming out to you right now. Oh, by the way, I read, I studied all week John chapter 14. I got a revelation for you right now. God just told me just when I was having my coffee this morning. That's really what you get on some preachers today. Sometimes even ourselves, we start demanding more of God than God is willing or, and ordainingly desiring to give to us. Are you faithful in a little before he gives you much? That's Luke 16. You see, it's easy to believe that Jesus did many miracles. We can believe about those factual events. It's easy to believe that Jesus even existed as a man in the first century. The Roman historians even wrote concerning his existence as a person. It's easy to believe that Mary was his mother and Joseph his father, his stepfather. 
All these facts regarding the narrative history of Christ. They're easy to believe in. But what is not easy to believe, even for the Christian, is to believe that Jesus is God and equal with God. And a distinct person within the Trinitarian persons. Right here is proof to the facts, right? Philip asking the question, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Do you really think it would be enough if Jesus did another work? Well, Jesus really is saying, I've done enough works. Why don't you believe now? It's not easy to believe that Jesus is God. And yet it's essential for eternal life, is it not? When Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. It's a divine act. It's divine grace. But it's not without human effort. When Thomas, Philip, and Judas were as far away as knowing Christ as God as they could be, Jesus graciously says to them, I will disclose myself to them. And yet we learn in John 8, the world demands. In fact, they said, where is the Father? Jesus' response back to the leaders of Israel was, you neither know me nor my Father, and you're going to die in your sins. You see, demands don't reveal grace. Faith does. Faith reveals the grace of God and the revelation of his personhood. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked yourself, is it really important for me to know that Jesus is God for my life and sanctification? I'm not questioning the salvation. Is it really important for me to know? I think this text answers to us with an absolute yes today. Let's talk about culture for a moment. When 73% of Americans say they are Christians, and 35% of that 73% only read their Bible, we have to ask, where does the 40% of Americans think they're going to learn about this eternal God in Christ? It's a difficult doctrine in and of itself. And you're not going to read your Bible to find out, right? Another George Barna survey found that 44% of Americans go to church to be closer with God. Ooh, isn't that the case? I, I do. I'm certain that most of you do. And yet, only 27% go to church to learn about God. That means 70, 17% of church-attending Americans don't know how to get close to God even when they desire to. Ooh. Do you have a desire... That doesn't meet the demands of an eternal God. I will disclose myself to you. You don't read your Bible? It just doesn't make common sense. And yet, that's what we have in America. <laughs> Here's a statistic. 94% of Christians who went to church last week said they didn't get anything out of church. That means 6% only learned something from God. That means only 6% availed themselves to knowing about God and Christ and His willingness and desire to reveal Himself as the eternal God. 
And you don't know me, he says to Philip. How can you even ask the question, he says. Part of me wanted to start counting. What does 6% look like in this church? For the sake of me being able to finish this sermon, I didn't do it. It's kind of an intimidating thing for the preacher. Now, granted, I know I'm speaking to the choir here. I love this church, and I think it's a sound, strong church. But we can go further, can we not, in our sanctified life, in knowing God and Him knowing us. There's a time where, about 10, 15 years ago, we started getting calls at the orchard. I still remember it was a college girl. We get a lot of calls from college girls trying to line up, you know, um, pick your own, I don't know, they probably call an event at the farm to go pick your own as an activity for the sorority or organization, whatever. And I still remember the phone call. Phone call, I pick it up. Oh, by the way, little dial tone for you young people. You know, I've heard that like a lot of young people, millennials, don't know how to spin the dial. All right? Old folks do. I pick it up. And she says, hi, how are you doing? I says, yeah, how are you doing? Right to orchard. She goes, by the way, um, do you have any other entertainment at the orchard? <laughs> and of course, when you hear that for the first time, you start thinking, Huh? So I start scratching my head and I start saying, well, okay, we have pick your own apples, we have pick your own peaches, we have pick your own pumpkins, we have pick your own raspberries, blackberries, and blueberries. No, no, you don't know what I mean. I said, do you have any other entertainment? And I'm going, oh, I think I know what she's getting at. Hay rides, face painting on pumpkins, pictures, selfies through holes in plywood. All right. And other things. To a certain extent, the farmers have created their own monster, by the way. But many times in the church, because we have to ask ourselves, why, are, why is this disparity in the church? 73% of Americans say they're Christians, and yet only 35% read their Bible. They've got to be getting their information from somewhere else. Are some Christians calling up churches and saying to Gary, me, or someone else in here, do you have anything else there other than entertain, any other entertainment? Right? Is there anything else? I mean, you know, not just the Bible. Right? Not just sermons. And yes, we like sing, singing, but, you know, other things. Do you? We have to ask ourselves, how is it that our culture got to this place? I really do believe, this is my personal opinion, that... To a certain degree, the church has actually um, de-incentivized the profitability of doctrine. In other words, doctrine is bad now. Feelings, experience, entertainment. We have professional preachers, or I should say we have, um, uh, I'm trying to use the word that I've heard recently, um, well, professional preachers, singers, uh, counselors, and so on and so on in the church. And we have to ask ourselves, whatever happened to the simplicity of doctrine and knowing the Bible to get to know your God? That's the only point I'm making. The statistics are bearing witness to it, that we're trying to get our information from some other source. George Barney even picks up on this, and he says, most Americans, quote, 
rely on their own reasoning power above God's wisdom to determine right from wrong. Quote, unquote. Moral relativism hasn't crept into the church. It's invaded it. It's invaded it. All you have to do is start looking at the statistics. Start seeing and asking your friends who go to other churches that are much more worldly, say, and ask them what they really know about God. My point is, knowing God is a sovereign, divine act of illumination from God, progressively revealed. But this illumination can never come from man's own reasoning, but from only being with Jesus and being filled with His Holy Spirit. It can only come from hanging around Jesus. How much do you hang around Him? To the credit of the disciples, God was on His divine, eternal plan of redemption. The day of Pentecost had not occurred yet. And therefore, the full revelation of God in Christ, as Christ being equivalent in essence and in substance, and yet distinct in personhood, had not been fully revealed. And yet, even at that point, that was only the beginning of God progressively revealing himself through the first two centuries of the church age to develop an understanding doctrinally of who this person is. And it's not that Christ didn't teach who he was. But the doctrine itself came out throughout church history progressively. But we don't have that excuse. We now look back to Calvary. We look back to the resurrection. We look back at the certainty of the Scriptures that says, this man, Jesus, the God, the Son, God, the Father, He is God in human flesh. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your understanding of God? We can talk about a lot of other doctrines, but if we don't understand God, we don't understand the foundation of truth. Additionally, how would you rate your knowledge of Christ, the Son of God, His relationship to the divine personhood of God, and His equality with God as God? Does your desire far exceed your actual learning? And are you learning more from the world than you are actually learning from the Bible? From fellowship? From other writers of good books? And others? Do you even recognize the disparity between the two? Does your desire for God far exceed your reading of your Bible? Yeah, I read my Bible at least once a week. You really think you're going to get to know Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the incarnate man, God in human flesh, and all the ramifications of that? This is a profound theological subject, but Jesus pairs it down very succinctly to Philip. What do you mean, Philip? Show me the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you even say and ask this question? Don't you see the Father in me as I am in the Father right now in your presence? He says, at the very least, Philip, believe the works that I have done. And maybe the scales will come off your eyes. Here's a very sad statistic. It's actually not a statistic. It's an observation from the George Bonner Research Institute. He said that when we used to do surveys, 
of Christians, we use the criteria that a Christian was defined as a person who went to church every single Sunday. Now the new criteria is, in order to even accomplish a survey to judge what's going on in the church today, the new criteria is a Christian is defined as someone who goes to church every four to six weeks. Do you really think we're going to learn much about God every four to six weeks? By the way, my intention here is not to embarrass you. It is not. It is to, you could say, develop the understanding within all of you that the culture has crept into the church. And we're kept very busy. You know, by the way, Satan doesn't have to take away our faith. He just has to make us too busy to know about God to defeat us. That's all he needs to do. It will take your time, your effort, your strength, your heart, your mind, your will, your entire life to know God. I don't know as much about God that I will in another ten years, ten days. But it's a worthy adventure. A worthy task that will require labor. It will require meditation. It will require prayer. It will require everything of you, spiritually. And yes, even physically, to remove yourself from circumstances, to place yourself in holy circumstances. Are you at the place where God is unfamiliar to you, or do you know him intimately as the eternal God? Do you? The church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 had a love that was lost, you could say. They left their first love. Christ was no longer their priority. The church of Laodicea, the last church mentioned, is a church that was naked and didn't know they were naked. Some Christians independently, individually, can be like that, let alone whole churches. Jesus' statement, by the way, to Philip, is the answer to everyone, every Christian's search to know God. Have I been so long with you, Philip, that you don't know me? The statistics prove it. The word of God proves it. And let, let's just say that common sense proves it, does it not? Now, the word ginosko here is um, the word no in the Greek. We could word it differently, and I think this is illuminating to word it differently, to see how our knowledge can be as ignorant as the disciples and unbelieving. For instance, Philip, have I been so long with you that you don't have knowledge of me? Or, Philip, have I been so long with you that you're not aware of me? Or you do not perceive who I am? Philip, have I been so long with you that you cannot speak intelligently about me? Philip, have I been so long with you that you aren't sure of me or you don't understand me or you don't recognize me? Do any of those fit you? Some of them fit me. I have to guard my heart against those things that would tear away at my not only knowledge but my intimacy with God. Because, by the way, you can't have intimacy with God in relationship without knowing God first. It doesn't happen in reverse. In the Godhead, there is union, communion, and diversity. When I say Godhead, I'm talking about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We, too, have union with the Father through Christ. We have communion with the Father through the Spirit. And my relationship to God is distinct, personal, knowable, intimate. Is it? 
Is it like your flesh? It'll finally give way to decay. It is already. Look at my arms. I'm looking pretty old now. I'm 60 this year. But the idea, though, is, is it like your touch, your intimacy with God? Is it? Is it palpable? Do you feel God as much as you know God? And do you know God that leads to feeling God? Do you know He's in your presence? Do you recognize Him? This is what we've been talking about in the Trinitarian study on Tuesday nights. Creation itself bears witness to His divine nature and His eternal power so that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1. But by the way, for us, do you recognize His eternal power, His divine nature, just by taking a walk in the woods? Do you? That's intimacy. That's love. That's closeness. That's friendship. All this is relational. Another thing we've learned is that what we already experiencing with God in intimacy is already what the three persons of the Trinity are already experiencing between themselves right now, from eternity past to eternity future. Relationship. Intimacy. And he says, I want you to have it. All of you. To be intimate with me. Philip, you don't know me yet. But you will. Simply in John 10, Jesus said it succinctly. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. My own. Ownership. Adopted sons and daughters. Relationship. Love. Knowledge of the one who you do say you love. Or is it just a word? Oh, I've heard about the Trinity. Unfamiliarity. A desire that's never, ever fulfilled. Is it? Jesus has to be the object of our faith. Has to be. He has to be the object of our belief and our love. And yet he says to Philip, in all the time I spent with you, you still don't know me. Believe me, he says in John 14, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The implication is that Philip has wasted time for three years. I've been with you since you called me, Lord. And I still don't know you and I have to ask you the question. And Jesus doesn't cut him any slack. I know you've been with me for three years. You should know me by now. Been a Christian five years, one year, ten years, twenty years, thirty years. It's possible for a Christian to know God better than a thirty-year-old Christian from a one-year Christian. Do you know that? Very possible. How could he not know? In Mark 3... Philip cast out demons with the rest of the disciples. You know, when that event happens, (laughs) there's a demarcation line between good and evil. And Jesus enables his disciples to do so. And he's basically teaching them, you have the power over Satan and all the demonic realm and all of evil because I'm God. Philip, did you get it? 
when you see demons cast out, screaming, leaving the very persons that were released from them? Why didn't you get it back then? In John 1, Philip says to Nathaniel, We have found him who Moses in the law and also in the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him. The question to Philip is, who'd you find? Who'd you find? Since you've been saved, who have you found? Interesting in this conversation, Philip is next to Nathaniel, because Philip tells Nathaniel, and Jesus says to Nathaniel after he arrives, he says, Nathaniel, I saw you underneath the fig tree. And Nathaniel says back to Jesus, he says, How do you know me? Now he could have said, How'd you do that? As if Jesus was a magician. But he says, How do you know me? Now, you'd hope both Nathaniel and Philip would have picked up. How does this man omnisciently know I'm under the fig tree? Philip, your head's on, but you're not thinking. Nathaniel, same way. John 6. Philip's present at the feeding of the multitudes. No man can feed thousands of people with only a few baskets of food. It just doesn't happen. Who is this man called Jesus of Nazareth? How about chapters 11 and 12 of the Gospel of John? Philip was present at the raising of Lazarus. Can any old man, any man, raise someone from the dead after being three days in a tomb? No. Why don't you believe, Philip? Maybe your desire has not caught up with the reality of the person in front of you. Maybe you've been saved for a long time, but the person of Jesus and the desire you have for Him has not caught up with the person who's standing right in front of you all the days so far since you've been converted and saying, I believe. Maybe we need to read our Bible a little more closely. Maybe we need to, as the Scripture says, add to our faith and believe more in seeing this Jesus as God in flesh. We can say that Philip heard regularly and saw regularly the manifestation of the personhood of God and Christ and Christ's equality with the Father. And I'm not telling you that they could, even if they knew of all the Trinitarian reality, that they could have defined it and explained it clearly. Because God is a mystery in many ways. And as Calvin said, he says, all doctrine ends in mystery. But that doesn't keep us from studying doctrine. Right? It just doesn't. In fact, if we only learn, I'm, I'm quoting a guy named Polony, if I can remember right, if we only search for things we could know, we'd stop searching. Because you'd come to an end point, I know everything. And isn't that the elevation of human ego to its farthest extent? Relationship. Jesus said in John 14, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. How come you don't get them, Philip? How come? 
Like I said, they have an excuse. They have the day of Pentecost still to come in fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. But we already have had that at the day of our conversion and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, teaching of us of Christ, the hope of glory. I believe we can put the blank in where Philip's name is. And we all have to ask that question. Have I been so long with you, Gary, Megan, Todd, Randy, and so on, that you don't know me? Or you do? Do you still have desire? But it's such a desire where you haven't really put any effort into it. Oh, you talk big, but you don't know really that much. You're lacking in understanding. You don't have assurance in Him. You're not aware of Him. You live life as if, well, you're like any other unsaved person. And every once in a while you get caught in a fix, maybe a trial, and you start crying out to Jesus and you recognize, yeah, He's there. He's right in my presence. He's God. But then you go back to the old way of life. Is that you I'm describing? I don't know. There's no single person here I'm thinking of. As we become intimate with the Son, we become more intimate with the Father through the Spirit. To ignore the Son's loving advances to teach us more about the Father and His relationship to Him is to say the child's relationship to the Father is an illegitimate one. How can the Son live in such a way, desiring to know God without putting in the effort to know Him? How can we? For you and I, Jesus has disclosed himself through his indwelling spirit. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for maybe you're a young child, you're saved, you're eight, nine years old here, and you've just been recently saved, you're waiting to grow up? You know how many times I heard college students over the past decade say, well, you know, it's a very rigorous life being a college student. I'll get to know Jesus later on. I've heard that almost verbatim by college students. And I mean over the decades, multiple, multiple college students. How many parents have I heard? Well, you know, I got three kids, five kids, eight kids, ten kids, I don't know. But when the kids finally leave the house, I'll finally get to know Jesus. Do you know Satan loves to always put something else on your schedule, whether today or ten years from now, to occupy your time so you, he would keep you from knowing Jesus? You realize that that's a, one of the major accomplishments in Satan's life before the eternal fire? Well, I pray and hope that we don't have to face death. And say, I really don't know Jesus and I'm about to go to eternity. It will take all of you to know him. But God is able to reveal himself to you. What about the unsaved here? You don't know him at all. You have a desire. I preached this once to a, to a um, <clears throat> homosexual friend of mine. And I says, if any man wishes to come after him, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And I said to him directly, I've known him for decades. I says, my friend, I says, you have the wish. You have the desire. But you don't have the will. You don't have the heart. Because you want him without also the commands. 
It's the reason why Jesus said, He who obeys my commands loves me. He has demands. Yes, he does. It's not that your salvation is based on the obedience of those commands. But salvation, true salvation says, Lord, I want to know you. And to know you is to obey your commands. And to obey your commands is to know you. And I love that dynamic. We're about to go to the Lord's Supper. Do you know that that is what we do once a month? as often as the scripture says, to know him all over again. I've given you my life as bread. I've given you my blood as wine. Eat of me. Drink of me. Consume me as the eternal God in flesh. As the God who now reigns on the throne of David and now loves you to a degree, I mediate for you. Even now. And I mediate you even to the degrees where I would disclose myself to you. Even if you just ask me, I'll give to you liberally and I won't withhold it, he says in James. Just ask him and then pursue him as if you're a child pursuing a parent he loves or as a lover pursuing his fiancée or as a husband pursuing his lovely bride. Pursue him as your groom, that you may know him. Let us finish your prayer. Father in heaven, as this service continues, may you reveal yourself to our hearts that we might know you through the song and the lyrics, through the melodies, even in our own heart of faith, through, O oh Lord, the Lord's Supper, through the prayers to know you as the eternal God equal with the Father in essence and substance. To know you as our God who rules and reigns over our life even now. Would you, dear Lord, even in the simplistic thing of the offering that we're about to partake, would you cause us to know you because, O Lord, you own the cattle on a thousand hills because you are God. You created this earth and all we do is give and return back to you. Father, fill us with the, what we could say, the Trinitarian reality of God that he's in our presence even now. He fills the heavens and the earth as the scripture says. And let us be in awe and adore him to the glory of his name. Amen.